Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists. And you're listening to Global Caveat. Today, we're going to talk about breast cancer, who it affects and why, what we can do about it, and why research is so important to prevent and treat breast cancer. Before we get started, I do want to thank all our supporters who make Global Caveat possible. We truly appreciate your shares, your money, subscriptions, and your reviews. You can also become a contagion by signing up as a patron for as little as $1 a month. This season, we have new content on Patreon. We will be hosting two Q&A sessions every month, one with us, your favorite scientists, and one with different guests we've had on the show. If you have any burning questions, requests, or things you'd like to ask with the privacy of anonymity, this is for you. Okay, let's dive right in. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Rukia Henry, a PhD researcher that focuses on breast cancer. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to get to talk to you like this because oh. our interactions have been just Instagram. Um, yeah. <laughs> so can you give us just a short intro about who you are and what you do and then contact info for if people want to reach you? I am a second year graduate student in the Cellular and Molecular Pharmacology PhD program here at Rutgers. I currently work in a DNA repair lab where we focus on the different DNA repair pathways in cancer and how we can better understand those to create targeted therapies. I primarily work on breast cancer, although there are other people in the lab who focus on other cancer types, but it's generally a lab that the advisor comes in and say, hey, I want you to look at this cancer, see if there's a correlation somewhere. I hop on that. So I am not a PhD candidate yet. I am currently preparing to defend or propose my my thesis. Um, So I am excited and nervous about that. But (laughs) that's where I am right now. You can reach me on my email, which is lifewithrukia.com. Actually, no, that's my blog. But (laughs) Instagram is lifewithrukia.com. And <laughs> to reach me, you can go to contact at lifewithrukia.com. That's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. So, awesome. And my name is spelled R-U-K-I-A in case people don't know how to spell Rukia. It's like awesome. five letters. So it's <laughs> I'm sure you get interesting variations. I do. I do. Spelling and pronunciation. I get it all the time. <laughs> Funny. So you do not just breast cancer research, but you could at any point be doing other types of cancer research as well? Yeah, so one of the projects that I'm working on right now is looking at trying to increase the efficacy of immunotherapy. And it's not just for breast cancer, so we are looking at different kinds of cancers, um, breast, colorectal, prostate, and we're trying to see ways in which we can increase how effective immunotherapy is in those subsets of cancer. Because although immunotherapy is the big thing around, you know, won a Nobel Prize and stuff in the last few years, we find that there is only like a 30% success rate. So I don't want to give away like too much info on what we're doing. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. we're basically trying to see if we can understand in those kinds of cancers, how we can increase it being more successful for patients who are receiving that kind of treatment. 
So I'm not just focused on breast cancer, though that's kind of what my thesis is on. I do have other side projects that focus on other kinds of cancer as well. Okay. So what led you to studying cancer in general or that field? In that field? I'm sure, just like millions of other people, you know, I've been affected by cancer. I know, I'm sure everyone listening or everyone that you know, know someone who was affected by cancer. And so um, growing up, I wasn't necessarily interested in it, even to the point where when I started to do research, it was neuro-related. So I started to look at HIV infection in the human brain and how that affects the brain development. Mm -hmm. But I later came to learn that, you know, I was more so connected with cancer and more so passionate about that because Well, in 2010, my mom was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer. And, you know, I was young at that age. I didn't really understand what it was. I mean, I knew it was a disease, but, and that it affected her. She went through her chemotherapy and radiation treatments. But I wasn't at the age where I really understood the etiology of the disease or, you know, not to say I wasn't interested, but interested in the scientific level. So after I came to the U.S. in 2014 and I started doing undergrad research, it was in the neural lab. And then towards the end of my tenure there, so about like 2018, my mom relapsed and she was diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer. So at that point, I was in college. I was a biology major. I was, you know, in the science field, so I was now better able to understand what was going on, you know, what was happening. I did my own research, um, you know, trying to come up with ways to advise her on, like, things to do, possible treatment methods and options. And I remember I met with this doctor at Howard University. He's, like, world-renowned Dr. LaSalle LaFall. And I met with him to, you know, possibly see what could be done for her at that stage and you know one of the things that he said was I don't know (laughs) you know it's late stage we don't have much treatment options for cancer patients at this stage and a lot of it goes to the basic understanding of like if you don't know how something works then how can you treat something and so I was actually at that point submitting applications to medical school And, you know, when he said that, it literally made me question all of it because here I was going to be a medical doctor and it's kind of like, okay, I'm personally affected by this. What if I have a patient who comes in one day and I figure out they have a certain diagnosis, but I don't know how to treat it because I don't understand it. And so that just changed my mindset. And I literally withdrew my applications to medical school. I submitted applications to graduate school because I wanted to understand what the hell was going on with cancer, you know? So that is kind of how I got into it. And then I was accepted here at Rutgers. I kind of chose here because they have a cancer center. And so that's where I currently work. Um, More so because even they have access to real patient samples. So that's what I work on. So I would be in real time, working on real patient samples, giving me, you know, real information. So that's how I am here, currently studying cancer, a brief background. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's actually awesome. incredible, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the hard things, you know, that I realized was as a PhD student, it's like I am at the forefront of creating knowledge that people don't know. I think for any PhD, like you literally create knowledge. People don't know the answers. And so that's kind of one of the hardest things, especially if when like I'm doing research and I get results and it's like hard to interpret because you're the person that has to figure it out and then share it with the world, you know? So it's kind of like, I made the decision that I didn't want to apply knowledge. I wanted to create it. I wanted to better understand it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of why I was directed or like driven. I'm currently here, you know, in this field. Yeah. So you were saying that part of the driving factor for you was that you were able to like have all these conversations with like other doctors or, and ask like, what do you suggest for this? Or you when your mom relapsed you you were in a place where you were able to access all of this information and learn about it so that way you could help Mm -hmm. her figure out what could be options for treatment what would you say for people that don't have access to things like that because that's something that you you happen to have the privilege to have that access to that knowledge and information but a lot of people don't right a lot of people don't know and they just have their one doctor telling them like, this is the end, or you don't have any options here. Like, these are your, like, current options. If it's, like, earlier stage, and maybe they're not giving you the best options. Um, you know, that's yeah. actually funny that you say that, because, you know, I was in that position, you know, when she was first there. Yeah. I remember, so, when I was in Guyana, we went to this doctor. So, she first felt the lump, and then we went to a doctor who literally told her that it was normal for women to have lumps in their breasts at that mm-hmm. age. You know, and, you know, at that point, I didn't know anything. She didn't really know anything. And I think it took her a while to get a second opinion because you go to this healthcare provider who you're trusting with your help to give you the right information and they give you the wrong information and not enough. And, you know, thankfully, or I guess fortunately, at the time, I had an aunt who lived here in the U.S., and she was also in the medical field, so she was able to suggest that we get a second opinion. When we did is when she was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer. So, you know, I look back at that, and I'm like, had we had the information directly when we went to the doctor, he would have probably told us, it's bad, take the lump out. Maybe... She would still be alive today because it wouldn't have progressed to stage two. And, you know, I feel like it's that access that a lot of times is the issue. Um, so what I would say is to always get a second opinion. I mean, Mm -hmm. even if you go to one doctor and he tells you something, I would suggest always to get a second opinion, even a third opinion. And at that point, if it is that for more than one healthcare provider, you're given the same information, then maybe there is some truth to it. But Mm -hmm. especially if you're given a second opinion that's given from the first one, then get a third one and see which Mm -hmm. one sends or like, you know, and keep following up because that way you're able to have more information to make a better informed decision about your treatment. I would say second opinion. If you know someone, you know, it's always about who you know. Um, Mm -hmm. ask them if they can help or, you know, a lot of, I don't like to suggest Googling because (laughs) you don't trust Dr. Google. (laughs) WebMD tells me that I'm dying tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, the thing is, a lot of people don't know how to use it Mm -hmm. to 
advantage or use it correctly because I mean there's PubMed and I mean that's another conversation for another day the way that scientists write <laughs> our manuscripts is so hard for the common person who does not study science to understand yeah. Um, yeah. that is a major barrier but there's always correct information and reliable information online mm -hmm. and maybe in doing so that's why you should be inclined to see or get a second opinion if maybe you google it and tell you that you're dying then okay go confirm that maybe you are maybe you aren't mm -hmm. but i would always say never just trust one doctor's opinion yeah so for your thesis, are you focusing on breast cancer? So for my thesis, I will be focusing on triple negative breast cancer, at least I think, because <laughs> you know, things change all the time in your PhD. Mm -hmm. But at this present moment, that is what I will be focusing on okay. for my thesis. Okay. So I'm going to kind of go back into the basics a little bit. I think a lot of cancer terms are thrown around common enough that we hear it, but for the sake of just establishing common understanding, can you explain what are, like, what is stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, and then also what you just said was triple negative breast cancer, which I've personally never heard. So can you also describe the different types of breast cancer, I guess, that also exist? Yeah. So I think, you know, again, one of the main misconceptions is that first of all people think cancer is just one disease it's not mm -hmm. but even if you break it down and it's and you get specific to breast cancer even breast cancer isn't just one disease because there are different driving factors that cause breast cancer or the progression of cancer that start in your breast um i don't want to get too technical with like the different cells in our breast is that mm -hmm. might get confusing but essentially our knowledge currently we kind of classify breast cancer based on the receptors that the cells have that basically cause the cancer to progress so there is what we call estrogen or progesterone positive breast cancer and that basically means that your hormone estrogen and progesterone which we all have is what's causing that cancer to progress so for that kind of cancer, you usually would do hormonal therapy to try and suppress that cancer. Mm -hmm. So on the cells, they have a receptor for estrogen and progesterone. So we call it ERPR. And there are some also that just have ER but do not have PR. <laughs> so it, <laughs> you even break it down more, you know. So think of those two as hormonal. Estrogen, progesterone, or progestin, there's different names that you call it, but it's the same hormone. So it has this receptor, and estrogen binds to the receptor, causes the cancer. Progesterone, it has the receptor, that hormone comes and binds, it causes the cancer. There's some with just estrogen and no progesterone, so that we term hormonal. Okay. Then there is HER2, which is just the human epidermal growth factor um it's basically just like a growth factor in our body that type of cancer that particular growth factor is causing it which is completely different to er and pr like i just explained so mm -hmm. while hormonal therapy will work for that kind of cancer it won't work for someone whose cancer is caused by her too which is the hormone growth factor not hormone, but just the growth factor <coughs> so essentially 
you have those three receptors that are commonly used or commonly used to classify breast cancers. Now, there is triple negative breast cancer, which doesn't have any receptor or any known receptor to this today that we know. So a patient comes in, you take a sample of their tumor, you run the diagnostic, like you do the diagnosis and you see that this cancer doesn't have any of those receptors. We don't see any estrogen receptor, we don't see any progesterone receptor, and we don't see any HER2 receptor. So that is like, okay, so what's causing it? <laughs> it's literally mm-hmm. what you call it, triple negative. We don't know. So we don't even, we can't even name it. That's why it's triple negative, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So essentially my thesis is going to be focused on trying to determine what exactly is happening in this kind of cancer and looking or investigating to see if I can find any kind of genomic rearrangements happening here where we can say, okay, for this cancer, we see commonly this is expressed so that maybe we can put a name to it and then have a particular treatment that would be effective because there isn't any targeted therapy for this cancer. So it's one of the deadliest, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like you can have targeted therapy for the others, but if there's nothing to target, then that person has a very bad prognosis compared to someone who might have ER or PR or HER2 breast cancer. Um, In terms of the stages, it basically is at what point has the cancer spread. So for stage one, you might just have that lump in your breast. Um, And when they do the biopsy, it could be that the cancer has not spread to your lymph nodes, which are under your arms or around the, around the tumor. So they can take it out. Maybe they'll do a little chemotherapy or radiation to that area just to kill and just to be safe, kill the residual cells around. Stage two is when it would have spread to your lymph nodes. And, you know, for stage three enters your blood. Stage four is when the cancer has metastasized. So it has left the breast and it has now gone and affected other organs in the body. Cancer, the common um, organs that are affected are usually the lung. Um, As for my mom, her lung, her vertebrae, and her brain, the cancer had metastasized there. So I'm not very familiar with the other kinds of cancers and where they primarily metastasize to, but for breast and stage four, it means it has spread to other organs in the body. And of the three types of the breast cancers that you mentioned, do you know what the prevalence rates for those are or just like how common they are in re- relative to each other? Um, well, for triple negative breast cancer, that usually around like 5 to 10% prevalence. It's not as prevalent as the others are. Usually ER and PR and HER2 are the most prevalent that are diagnosed. Um, I don't really have like a percentage because I don't know like worldwide <laughs> what the factors yeah. are. But in comparison to each other, Triple negative breast cancer is the least that is usually diagnosed. And that one, for some reason, primarily affects black women more than it does and men. Because breast cancer is not just for women. Men mm-hmm. can get breast cancer too. I don't know. I don't want to say fun fact, but Beyonce's yeah. dad had breast cancer. I think he mm-hmm. had it now and he's undergoing treatment. You know? So breast cancer does affect men. But triple negative breast cancer primarily affects black women um while the others er and pr does affect black women but not as much as other races compared to black women but we have no idea why 
Uh, you know, we have ideas. So I was actually at a seminar um, last week, and there was a presenter, I think her name was Ambrosone from Rosewall Park. So she was discussing possible reasons why. So one of the things that she said that really got me thinking was that African American women or black women are less likely to, which I kind of got confused. Maybe I, I misunderstood what she was saying entirely. <laughs> but one of the things that she mentioned was breastfeeding. So for African American women, they are less likely to breastfeed their children. Um, usually because one, they're not educated on breast, on breastfeeding, you know, black women at a socioeconomic disadvantage and most disenfranchised compared to other races. Um, so they don't breastfeed. And apparently breastfeeding provides a layer of protection against breast cancer. So remember, it's the hormone ER and PR that we produce in our breasts. And so you're less likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer if you breastfeed. Now, I don't know if this is a proven fact. Mm -hmm. These are just correlative studies that they have done. And so apparently that plays into it also. Previously, she was also noting that for black women, their rate of being diagnosed was less than other races. However, to date, it's seen that black women have been reaching the percentage and level of cancer, of breast cancer diagnosis as white women or women of other races. Um, and when I thought of this, it kind of made sense to me in the fact that maybe it's just based on how they were recording these cases. Because mm -hmm. if you think about it, you know, today's Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Day, Previously, we black people did not have the same access to health care as other mm -hmm. races. And so one person in the audience mentioned that around 1982 or 87, I think, in the 1980s is when they started taking Medicare and Medicaid. So at that point is when African-Americans and black people were then able to have access or better access to health care. And so mm -hmm. maybe at that point is when they were now able to start being properly diagnosed. Also, in terms of their stage of diagnosis, black people were less were more likely or black women were more likely to be diagnosed with later stage breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So most of them came in for stage three and stage four because maybe they didn't have access to screening and mm -hmm. you know, as compared to other women. So a lot of factors play into it. You know, I don't have my finger on just one, <laughs> you know, yeah. in, like environment your diet, you know, all of that plays a role in developing breast cancer. So even if there is a genetic cause, if there is a lifestyle cause, then how do you, how are you able to like treat that? You know, if after they have their treatment and they go home, are you going to tell them to live somewhere else? Or like if they don't have access to proper food, um, even their living environment, you know, it's like it's hard to change those factors. Because one of the things that I have noticed, which I have no idea if it even if there's anything there but i realized in my hometown a lot of women have recently been diagnosed with breast cancer and mm -hmm. when i think about it i think of the environment where i'm from in guyana they call it the mining town of linden because we mine bauxite so you can literally drive down a road and you see the emission 
in the air. It's so mm-hmm. dusty. It's full of bauxite. And so I'm like, is this playing a role? Because compared to other areas, I don't hear much diagnosis of breast cancer, at least recently, than I am hearing of now. So, you know, also there's genetic causes, um, you know, for breast cancer. So that also plays into it. So there's yeah. not like one single factor that I could say. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier about, um, in response to Diana's question about how when you were younger, the position that you and your mother found yourselves in early on in her diagnosis. And then did your mother move with you to the United States? She didn't. Okay, so she was still in Guyana at that yes. point. Yes, all okay. of her treatment she got in Guyana. Okay, so do you mind sharing what that was like Um for her and then for you as her daughter, observing that because mm-hmm. U.S. healthcare system isn't that great either, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to cancer, um, unless you have the resources and the access, you know, available. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, how did it compare in that sense just from um, in the context of your mother being in Guyana and then you seeing what's going on here in the United States? So I think... Just based on what her diagnosis was, I don't think there was anything that could have been done no matter where she was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with stage four, you know, having it metastasized to, you know, her in her body, there wasn't any targeted treatment or therapy that could have been done in Guyana or even here. Because when I met with doctors here, you know, they were like, it's late stage, there isn't any treatment. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was kind of like, well, I haven't really figured out something yet. <laughs> you know, I was kind of like, I was on both sides, as in like, okay, I wasn't diagnosed, but it's like I was a family of a patient. Mm-hmm. And I was a scientist, so I was sitting on this fence of like emotional madness. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like at one point, from the patient standpoint, okay, why haven't we made advances yet? We've been studying this disease for so long. Why can't we come up with something in the 21st century to treat it? And then I'm a scientist, where I'm like, okay, well, it's so complicated, and it's so like, <laughs> like mm-hmm. we can't put our finger on just one cause. And so for me, I think. Had it been another stage and possibly her not being able to get targeted therapy, then I feel like I would have been, I mean, I'm still affected emotionally. I'm just going to say that. But for her diagnosis, she had ER and PR. So though she had hormonal because and earlier they started to put her on hormonal therapy. Um, it wasn't as advanced or as targeted as if she had lived here. Um, also, it's expensive. We couldn't afford it, you know? So there was one other drug that we definitely couldn't afford. Um, I don't know if we could afford it, if perhaps it would have helped, but also, you know, that access. Cancer treatment is expensive, mm-hmm. you know? So even in that sense, I think maybe if she lived here, even with insurance, it probably still would have been expensive. But what I do think maybe would have been a major difference is the palliative care towards the end. Um, We don't have that great palliative care in Guyana in our healthcare system. I don't even think we have any, you know, because it was my grandmother and my aunt who primarily took care of her at that point Um, compared to maybe if she was over here, she may maybe have better access to, I I don't know, you know, truly because 
at that stage, you don't know, like there isn't anything. But perhaps if it was another stage where there was targeted therapy, I feel like I would have tried my best to get her, her over here to get that treatment. But yeah, it didn't matter where she was. We, did, we didn't have it. Yeah. Whew. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. I appreciate you sharing. I feel, yeah, I mean, I feel so the much. emotional investment that you have. And it's not, you know, I think in some ways it brings light to it. Well, it brings some element of humanity behind scientists, too. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, like scientists or researchers don't really care about humans. You guys just look at cells all day in the lab. Right. (laughs) But, you know, there is a very like human aspect to what you're doing. And, you know, there's a reason that you're in it. Or this is part of the reason. I'm sure there are like a million other reasons, too. But. Um, I do appreciate where you come from and how, you know, your approach and being honest with how kind of emotionally confusing it is in a lot of ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. you're like in the middle, being affected on both sides. Because mm-hmm. even, you know, I'll be honest, coming back, like after her death, it was hard for me to get back into cancer research because I literally struggled in every aspect not like emotionally i mean i would consider myself very emotionally strong because that that's how she raised me to be so i pride myself in being able to not be so affected by things in my life that i can't be a functioning human per se but coming back one of the hardest things was coming and like working on cancer i mean Mm -hmm. i don't know if it's a good analogy or comparison to make but just think of someone murdering a parent and then you have to go to work and work with that murderer every day Mm -hmm. or see that murderer every day you know and it's like you can't do anything about it as in you know at this well I mean you can do something about it but you're limited to what you can do at that point in time and so you know even now it's kind of hard like I had a conversation with one of my mentors and you know because I think she noticed well I told her that I was struggling and being productive in the lab and how I was kind of scared my parents would be like okay please leave because you're not doing anything you're not being productive (laughs) but they weren't they're extremely supportive and you know she asked me she said well you have to take some time to see if this is what you want to continue doing if you want to stay doing cancer research or if you want to change or if you don't want to be a graduate at all and go on a different career path and not think about it and you know I thought about it but I couldn't see myself doing anything else I'm like there isn't really anything else that I'm passionate about and I think like you said it does bring some humanity to scientists because I know I'm probably not the only one who is in science probably affected by something I know of a lot of people who get into research because there's like this personal connection and they're trying to find the answers um so I think it is important that the public understands that scientists are humans (laughs) you know we are affected (laughs) by a lot of things just like they are but at least in some ways we can try to make a difference every day you know I feel like there's a lot of different... Okay, cancer is complicated. (laughs) Number one. Um, And I feel like there's so many different ways that people and community find, um, I guess, empowerment to fight cancer. Mm -hmm. And so 
with breast cancer, I automatically think of like the pink ribbon and people, mm-hmm. you know, or people raising awareness about like, you know, make sure you feel yourself every mm-hmm. often and know how that goes. In your view as a researcher doing like, like cell work with like cancer and all and patients, um, how do you feel about the direction that, let me rephrase this question. This is hard because it's like, um, Okay, in my perspective, I feel like there's a lot of things that cancer can suck the hope out of things, right? Like, it could feel very helpless. Um, like, you hear stage four, you hear metastatic, you hear there's nothing that we know yet to do anything about. Um, yet, you're in this research studying triple negative, mm-hmm. and you want to produce knowledge that can help people in the future. Um, where do you find that hope, number one? And do you think we'll get there in the next 10 years? Next 10 years, so like the next decade. <laughs> 2030. <laughs> 2030. So I think in terms of hope, um, I think just look at where we are right now. Because if you think about maybe where we were in 2010, a lot of the targeted therapies we didn't have then. But it's because of research that we're now able to do even precision medicine. So even if someone has breast cancer and they do have ERPR, there are also mutations that we're now able to target. So there are specific drugs that target specific mutations in those cancers. And that has been a highly effective treatment that we're doing now and we're seeing you know, great success with doing that. We didn't have that in 2010 or maybe even 2000. So I think just looking at where we were and where we are and knowing that research is important and research can help, I think that is a motivation to continue doing it because we're able to now maybe open up a new door to access that we didn't have before. And, you know, we have to continue doing it every day. I mean, because it's kind of like, so at Rutgers, we have what we call a tumor board. So my advisor is ahead of that. And what he does is that every Friday, there's a meeting between him. So he's an MD, PhD. So he runs the lab, but he also sees patients. So it's a meeting with MDs, PhDs, pharmacists, pathologists, me, grad students. (laughs) (laughs) And essentially what they do is they present cases where they do a holistic view of that patient profile after they would have done different genetic testing and looking at in the biopsies to see what specific mutations or type that cancer is, and then how we can better target that person compared to someone who might have the same kind of breast cancer but might have a different mutation expressing, mm-hmm. you see? So in that sense, I think we're able to better treat patients. I mean, this year we heard that cancer rates have been dropping you know we so you know research is important and research does play that factor so even if you know someone says oh it's stage four let's give up who knows maybe the next decade we'll find something to treat stage four or even prevent it from getting there if we're able to stop it because my mom was in stage four initially she was stage two you know so if we can stop it and have a highly effective treatment at that level and at that stage, then there's no reason or need to progress to even get there. And that's why research is important. It's not just, I guess, treatment. Maybe look at it in terms of preventing it in the first place from getting to a worse point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> does that answer the question? Does that convince you? <laughs> it does. Uh, prevention is ideal, right? Like hopefully mm-hmm. we can get to a point where we can prevent things from happening 
um, earlier than later. Can't prevent it entirely. Yeah. If someone comes in with stage one or stage two, maybe we can find a way to stop metastasis from happening in the first place. Sure. You know, and that's another area of research. You know, so because yeah. I'm currently a volunteer with Susan G. Coleman organization, and you know they do fund research in those aspects, like especially triple negative breast cancer, because usually it's a very low prevalence, but it's the most deadly. You know, is that why it's the most low prevalence? I mean, right? I was thinking about that earlier. Cause, oh, about what? Um, with triple negative, because prevalence is like how many people currently have it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if it's most deadly, that that probably means that the mortality rates are pretty high. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. But what about incident rates? Like, are is that relatively high as well? Then it is. Yeah. yeah. It definitely is for that kind of cancer, triple negative. Okay. That's okay. what we're trying to figure. Hell is going on with it. <laughs> 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 I mean, there. There is research that shows like different treatment methods are effective for that kind of cancer, but I think the most important thing that I'm concerned with is targeted therapy. We have mm-hmm. targeted therapy for the other kinds, ER and PR, hormonal therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, PAR2, you do like the growth factor suppression, but with this one, you don't have anything to target, sure. you know? So again, that's why research is important. And I think, you know, also <clears throat> the incidence rate in African American women, it is higher. Also, mm-hmm. so we have to figure out is there a genetic cause? Usually, also, if you have a BRCA two mutation, you're most likely to also get triple negative breast cancer. So that is okay. a mutation. They call it the BRCA gene. Mm-hmm. So that is a protein involved in DNA repair, which I study in my lab. And having that mutation puts you at risk for certain types of cancer, breast being one, um, prostate. But there is a direct correlation between BRCA2 and getting to negative breast cancer. So mm-hmm. again, also mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, from your earlier question, if so, not having that access, um, I would also encourage those who are listening now to take advantage of genetic testing, you know, because that is a way to prevent breast cancer, preventative measure. Sure. I learned, I just learned so much. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I don't understand cancer, but now I understand breast cancer a little bit. <laughs> That's how I feel. I'm like, oh. Yeah, so, you know, there are mutations that can put you at risk. So especially, even if you don't understand breast cancer and you have, a direct relative who was diagnosed with breast cancer, I would suggest to you and those listening that they do genetic testing Mm -hmm. to see, well, usually the patient does genetic testing. So again, coming back to the difference in healthcare system, um, in Guyana, we don't have access to genetic testing. So when mom was first diagnosed, there was no genetic testing done. In the U.S., as soon as you're diagnosed, they do genetic testing to see what the screening profile is and how they can now better approach that with targeted therapy. So that was a major difference. So especially after she passed um, and I met with my advisor, who is a medical doctor also, (laughs) you know, he he was extremely supportive and he encouraged me to get genetic testing done, especially because, one, my mother didn't get it. 
So we don't know if there is a genetic cause. So I was fortunate enough that I worked at a cancer institute to have mm-hmm. access to genetic testing. Thankfully, I don't have the gene. I don't know, it's like personal health information I'm sharing, but <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, it puts you at ease to know that you're not directly at risk, you know, for breast cancer. Sure. Um, I know of this other scientist, I don't know if you know her, Serafina. She's like, yeah. Yeah. So she was tested positive for the BRCA gene and she has done a prophylactic mastectomy to reduce her chances at least by 80% of getting breast cancer in her future. So, you know, there are preventative measures you can take before you even get to that point. So I think people should take advantage of those. Because I remember I volunteered with Susan G. Coleman um, last October and I was at the research booth and so I was like the scientist people were coming and looking at like mini like slides we had with breast cancer and I was asking them which one you think looks like breast cancer and stuff like mm-hmm. that and there was a family who came up to me and because they saw me on stage earlier I went up on stage to represent research mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and they came and they were asking me all of these questions. And one of the women shared that her sister passed away from breast cancer. But at the point where when she did, I don't think they were doing genetic testing at that point. So oh, okay. another thing also why research is important because we're able to make advances like this. Sure. So yeah. you know, I was able to encourage her to get genetic testing done and you know she actually called me last week to say that she wanted to do it because I mean I'm a scientist but I'm also a human (laughs) you know I feel like even with that I was able to connect with her on the level where I understood where she was coming from but I was also in a position being a scientist to give her correct and valid and helpful information and you know still caring about what possibly might happen and so she asked if she could get my contact information in case she had other questions and of course I did because I'm a nice person (laughs) (laughs) but you know I was happy that you know that she did because that she's currently taking care of her niece her sister daughter who passed and you know for her for her niece it's important that you know she gets tested too at the correct age so you know just being able to make that impact and to show how important it is Mm -hmm. one research is and two the advances we've made to prevent it and then you know three we have these measures in place that make treatment better for patients so it almost sounds like a lot of the advancements we've made at least in the united states are pretty recent like within i mean the thing is i believe it's we (laughs) we just build on knowledge from the past so even if it took years to get here you know we were Mm -hmm. building on the basics of scientists who found things out before even dna repair i mean we didn't know that maybe dna repair was involved in cancer when we first were looking at the pathway and how our cells repair itself after damage Mm -hmm. but you know we're able to make that link years later or whenever because the BRCA gene they literally call it breast cancer gene brca you know Mm -hmm. was made by a scientist after she saw she was studying dna repair and she noticed she made the correlation that hey if patients have this mutation in their DNA damage pathway, then I see a high prevalence of them getting breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
we have made like maybe groundbreaking advances like immunotherapy, precision medicine, and targeted therapy. Maybe in the next decade we'll make a breakthrough with TNBC, triple negative. Yeah. You know, so you're right. Yeah. <laughs> and then you'll be the face of. You very well know that the grad students never are the face. It's the PI who's funny. Hey, that uh, grad student at MIT who took a picture of the NASA yeah. whole thing. Sure. That could be you, but in the breast cancer world. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about all that, but we'll see. <laughs> Let me first propose the piece. <laughs> Let me first pass. <laughs> and then we'll see about that. Small steps. Small steps. Yeah. <laughs> Baby steps. So funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> Nana, do you have anything? <laughs> um, I mean, I just have the thoughts of I hope that all the research that we're doing here and other like global north countries that are doing research get to be more available to other countries because that's what like everything that you were saying about the difference in the healthcare system here and in Guyana it would have been great to have the option to have the genetic testing so I hope that that becomes available and accepted you know more everywhere so that way it can be like everywhere is having the access to all the groundbreaking work that's being done with cancer research. Mm-hmm. You know, I did try. I'm still trying, but there is a company in Guyana who usually is very supportive of breast cancer. So I wrote up a proposal for them to possibly subsidize genetic testing in Guyana. Hmm. Um, awesome. I don't really have any updates for that right now, but you know, being here and having the education and the information and the access, it's kind of like, I think. I always say to whom much is given, much is required. Mm. And, you know, I'm fortunate to be in an environment where I have access and information to, you know, all these groundbreaking healthcare. And I feel like it's my responsibility to try to share that with others. So I'm hoping that that comes through, at least in this new decade, so that genetic testing can be introduced to Guyana. And so, you know, with families who might have a prevalence or incidence of breast cancer, they would now have the access to maybe get the testing done Mm -hmm. and then maybe get the preventative surgery done so that the incidence rate of breast cancer can be reduced in Guyana that way. So that's just one small but effective avenue, I think. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. awesome. Yeah. I hope um, that moves forward in a really positive. Yeah. Same. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, I don't have further questions. I just feel like I have a lot of other questions about like how. I don't even know. I'm not even sure if you have them because I'm just curious about like other like rates and risks and factors and going on with like all different ethnicities because I understand that you're saying that it's becoming or it's like obvious that it's more prevalent in like black women or African-American women. But I'm curious about like all the other ethnicities as well and like what factors and why that possibly could be or like what genetics are happening there that makes race part of Mm -hmm. why and how. Because even for the BRCA testing, so when I went to, even now, when I went to get my checkup or before, you know, my healthcare provider asked me if I was Jewish. Because apparently in the Jewish community, the BRCA gene is prevalent. So if you're Jewish and you know, 
that's one of the first things that they do. So he was even kind of hesitant to do it in a sense because I wasn't of that lenient. So there was probably a low probability of me testing positive. Yes. Huh. I'm very much so educated. That's also... Yeah. It's also just interesting that he would be like, well, you're not the person that's like we've noted is potentially at risk, so we're not going to test you. Like, that's also strange. Like, and even coming back to that, I feel like you have to be your biggest advocate. Because yeah. you can see all of these things online and you go to one doctor and he gives you an opinion because even with that, so in taking preventative measures from my own self, you know, I'm aware that there is a window where they suggest that if you are a direct relative of someone who's been diagnosed with breast cancer, that you should t- start taking preventative measures such as mammograms. So I am 24. My mother was first diagnosed at 33. So there is a 10-year gap where they suggest or highly recommend that the direct relatives start getting tested at that age. So, you know, I went in and I wanted to get a mammogram. I'm 24. I'm in the 10 year bracket. So I'm for me, the earlier, the better, you know, Mm, and that is the case for anyone. But he was so hesitant because he's like, you're so young. You got the genetic testing done and you're negative. Why are you doing a mammogram? Like your breasts are so dense at that age. And I mean, granted, I understand his concerns, but at the same time, it's my health and I want to be in control of my health and my health outcome. So I was like, I still want it, <laughs> you know? So even then, there's still, I feel like medical doctors sometimes also have a limitation on like what they might think you should do in that stage. But I think it's important that patients and everyone be your biggest advocate and say, because mm-hmm. I could have listened to him and be like, okay, if you say so. But, mm-hmm. you know, even with the advances that we've made, there is a new 3D I forgot the specific name of it, but compared to the regular mammogram where you go lay down and you literally squish your boobs, it's so painful. No, mammograms are one of the, that I have heard of, are super painful because they literally squish your boobs like pancakes (laughs) together. It's not even funny. Like, if you ask any woman who's gotten one, they are so fearful and so painful to do. Scary. And so, a lot of times they suggest that for older women because, you know, at that point they've lost a little density, it's like saggy, so it's not as painful. But for us young women who have super dense breasts, just imagine that happening, like somebody squishing your boobs and you like. So I understand his concern and I'm just concerned for my comfort and how I probably would have taken it. But there is a new 3D imaging machine (laughs) that makes it easier for you to get a mammogram done so i went earlier in the month to get one and i can tell you i barely felt any pain so i think for young women who are listening you should take advantage of you know what we have now especially in advances for doing mammograms and even you know i'm an advocate for feeling yourself (laughs) you know you have to know what your normal is in order to know what's not normal and be like okay something's wrong here but especially if there is this health risk and there is the prevalence in your family genetic testing first and then start getting your mammograms because mm-hmm. that is let's just prevent it all together <laughs> you yeah. know be happy to live in a cancer-free world <laughs> mm-hmm. i don't know in the next decade that's probably never going to happen <laughs> 
at least protect yourself and be informed and make informed decisions for your health. Yeah. I feel like that's um that's a common thing we hear on this podcast from a lot of our guests. Yeah. I think that's yeah, that's great. Like life advice, actually. Yeah. <laughs> in any yes, in any aspect, be your biggest cheerleader. Like, advocate. Yeah. Like, no one's gonna root harder for you than you because you yeah. know what you want. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. so before we close, mm-hmm. I have two two questions. I guess number one, um, you mentioned your mother a lot throughout this time that we've had together. What was her name? Nadine. Nadine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing about Nadine and your. Um, I really appreciate that. And then secondly, is there anything that you feel like you want to share or get off your chest or advice, anything before we end this conversation? I think the biggest takeaway I want people to know, especially about breast cancer, is that, like I said earlier, it's not just one disease. So, you know, we have made amazing advances thus far in terms of treatment, but it's very complicated. And I think a lot of times, you know, maybe even within my own family, it's kind of like if you're not in this sphere, it's sometimes very hard to understand maybe why we haven't figured out a cure if we're studying it for so long Mm -hmm. or that people always fall into this mentality that scientists are hiding here and it's all about money, you know. And while I will agree that a lot of times you have to blame insurance companies for the money aspect, you know, mm-hmm. it's not our fault as scientists. We do our best to try to figure stuff out. Yeah. But aside from that, it's kind of like there's this kind of cloud of doubt that we're hiding things or that we aren't making advances. We are mm-hmm. every single day. But, you know, it's complicated and we're doing our best to try to yeah. understand what's happening. And then, you know, like I said, you as a patient, you have to be your biggest advocate, especially if you go to see a healthcare provider, even if someone in your family is diagnosed, like I said, get a second opinion and try to at least learn as much as you can to make an informed decision about the possible treatment. If you feel a lump, it's not normal to have a lump. So I would suggest that you, if a doctor tells you that, just walk out of the office right away. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you have to take control of your health, especially, and, you know, preventative measures, genetic testing. Like, there are a lot of things that are out there. Because even though I'm a scientist, I am also someone who is personally affected by it. So mm-hmm. I'm now both a patient and kind of the researcher slash on the healthcare side. So while I might be fortunate to be in that position, I think, you know, I'm trying to use that this platform to encourage those who might just be on the patient side. Or even those just on the research side who might just be so focused on what they do to understand the broader impact of what they're doing you know because i mean i have met other scientists who are very like not friendly (laughs) even some other scientists you know but i think it's important to relate and maybe understand why the public might be frustrated and not to get upset because a lot of times what I find, even in the SciComm community, is that a lot of scientists get frustrated and upset with people who might not understand. And, you know, mm-hmm. they do have a lot of back and forth. Not even in 
cancer in general in different topics. But I think it's important that you put yourself in their shoes and maybe try to understand their perspective. Yeah. Like, you know, my mom was mm-hmm. told me, not everybody was raised the way that you were raised. And not everyone has the same understanding or information or education as you do. So you have to understand or try to understand why they might think that way. And in doing so, you're now able to know how to formulate your responses or advice to them, you know, make it relatable. So on both sides, to the public, I'm not hiding anything. <laughs> and, you know, to other scientists, you know, kind of like learn how to be personable in order to make the best impact that you can with your platform. Awesome. I love that. So thank you so much, Rukia, for talking with us. As a reminder, you can reach her at Life with Rukia on Instagram. And the resources for this episode, as well as the transcript, are up on the website. As a reminder, if you have any questions, you can always reach us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at globalcaveat. And thank you to all our listeners and supporters for helping this podcast run. And a special thanks to Cordell Glass or Hot Cocoa for producing our music. Thanks for listening.